This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today's a little bit different. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but there's like a controversy of pastors. Uh, well, you probably didn't even want to know this. Do you want to know it? It's bad, but do you want to know it? Yeah, okay. There's like pastors that steal people's sermon that, that preach sermons and don't give, uh, don't say that they're actually preaching a manuscript that someone else wrote. That's a little bit of a controversy, pastoral plagiarism. And uh, so that's, that's bad that we've reached that, that point. Um, I, can, I can assure you no one's ever preached one of my sermons somewhere else. So that's, they're, not, they're not being stolen or pirated or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, people actually preach other people. There's, there's places online, like you could get a term paper written for you in college. You can get a sermon done for you and download it. Well, I actually am going to preach someone else's sermon today. Uh, the good news is it's from Paul and not some other guy. Uh, so that's the good news. Uh, I'm not just like reading a manuscript that I got offline. Uh, I'm reading the Bible, but it's sort of different because I'm going to preach a sermon about a sermon. It, it's like a sermon within a sermon, which was like a dream within a dream. I couldn't stand that movie, but I uh, did not understand it, and I hope this sermon will be more understandable than that dream within a dream within a dream movie, which I, didn't, I just blocked it out of my mind. I thought it was so bad, I didn't even remember the name of it, but a lot of people really liked it. So anyway, hopefully this sermon will be received, a sermon within a sermon about a sermon from Paul in Acts 13. So let's pray, and then we will jump into the text. God, we thank you that you preserve the preached word within the word, that you let us know when you inspire the preaching of the gospel what it's to look like, what it's to read like, what it's to sound like in our ears. And so we thank you for preserving this word that you inspired through Paul, and we pray that it would hit us today, that the clarity of it, that the simplicity of it... um, that the pointedness of it would land on us like it landed on the first hearers. And Lord, while I have no ability to preach like Paul, I can open this text. You do speak to us through this written word. And so we pray that your God-breathed word would go forward today and that it would fulfill its purpose. I pray particularly, just as Paul's first hearers, some responded with belief for the first time. I pray anyone in this room who's yet to meet you, that you would grant them spiritual life now as we read this, that the lights would go on that, that spiritual breath would be in their lungs, as it were, that you would cause a dead soul to rise to life, which only you can do. So, Lord, give us your power as we hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think one of the things we're going to notice today is the simplicity of the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the Bible that Jesus died and was resurrected uh, for our sins, but the good news has a simplicity and a focus to it, and I think we're going to see that in the way that Paul preached it uh, this to these people in uh, Antioch, which we're about to, uh, about to read about. We can tend to overcomplicate things, but the gospel is simple. So today is a simple gospel sermon that uh, I am lifting from the book of Acts, so that you know. So it's kind of long, so I'm going to read a few verses at a time, 
and then uh, we'll look at, look at them together. So verse 13, chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from a church in Antioch. They've gone on a mission expedition. They've gone to Cyprus, and the highlight of that trip on the island of Cyprus is they led the proconsul, who's the governor of the island, they led him to faith in Jesus Christ. So God gave the governor of the island faith in the Lord. Just a miraculous story that we read last time, and now we're going to pick up in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas have gone into this town, and uh, they've left the island of Crete, and uh, then they've gone and done something in Perga. It doesn't really tell us. But then they go from Perga to a town called uh, Antioch in Pisidia. Now, didn't they come from a town called Antioch? Yes. There was actually 16 towns called Antioch. This is like being one of George Foreman's kids. All of his kids are named George. I don't know how many he has, but if I got the story right, they're all named George. And uh, so there's all these towns. I'm from Antioch. Well, that tells you nothing. So they were in Antioch in Syria. Now they're in Antioch in uh, Pisidia. And we don't know why they go to Antioch um, in Pisidia. It could be an interesting historical fact is the governor, the proconsul they led to the Lord who became a believer, Sergius Paulus, he had a lot of family and they were some of the wealthiest families in uh, Pisidia and Antioch. So there could have been a connection there. Hey, he came to the faith. I know other people and doors are open. The Bible doesn't tell us that, but that's a possibility of why they go there. And a couple things happen as they go. First of all, John Mark leaves them. We read that in verse 13. Their traveling companion, John, he left them and goes back home to Jerusalem. I'm just mentioning that to you. When we get to chapter 15, we're going to find out that his leaving was a desertion. It's just as matter of fact here. But we're going to see that. We're also going to see he's a hopeful story because... Paul viewed him, in essence, as a deserter of the mission in in some sense. Uh, But Paul later in his life will be uh, asking for John's help and commending him. So it's a good story that comes full circle. But just want to note that right now. And secondly, we note that Paul is now the leader of the mission. It used to be Barnabas and Paul or Barnabas and Saul. But now, verse 13, it's Paul and his companions. So he is leading, and they are in uh, Antioch and Pisidia, and they go to the synagogue where the Jews gather on a Saturday, and they hear the reading of the Law and the Prophets, that's from the Old Testament, and then the ruler says, hey, do you guys have any message for us to Paul? And uh, boy, that he's going to find out was a mistake on his part because Paul just happened to have something ready to go, which some of the leaders aren't going to be too happy about. So they invite Paul to speak and he preaches a sermon and we kind of look at it. One author I read uh, kind of highlighted it and said, there's three parts of the sermon. There's proclamation, which is the bulk of it. Um, there is... Um, application, and then there is response of the people. That's what we get in the narrative. So I'm going to read a section at a time and then comment on it. So we're going to start with his proclamation of the, of the gospel. Look at verse 16. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. 
And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took place about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, this may sound complex. If if the Bible's new to you, this may sound complex. Um, What what Paul is doing is he is... talking to these religious people, Jews, and he's talking in super familiar terms to them. He's just going over their history. It would be like if you're an American and I stood up and I said, George Washington was the first president of the United States. You would know totally what I'm talking about. You would wait a minute, George Washington, can somebody Google? You, you would know who George Washington is. And so he's going over their history, so this is very familiar. If you're new to the Bible, I understand this may not be familiar, but I'm going to walk through it very, very uh, briefly uh, and tell you what is going on. Paul goes to the Jews, he says, look at our history. And here's the big idea. Our history is all about God taking initiative, God coming to us, God's grace to us. That's all what our history is. It's always been God generously coming to us to rescue and to save us. Now, he's about to say the big rescue has come, but he's going to point to these historic rescues. So the first thing he says is, um, men of Israel, verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. What he's referring to is the fact that God picked a guy out named Abram and said to him, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to make a people. You're going to become a nation of people. I'm going to give you a land. And then here's the big news. I'm going to bless the whole world through your people, through your nation. That's Israel. So he comes and does that to Abram. Several generations later, after Abram's family's gone on several, he becomes Abraham, several generations, they're taken into captivity and become slaves in Egypt. So then he says, when you were in the land of Egypt, God made our people great. He made the people great. They multiplied. They had a ton of people. Uh, they had a large nation of people while they were in Egypt. And he says, and with an uplifted hand, he led them out. So this is the first great rescue. He came generously. He came and chose Abram. He came to bring salvation ultimately to the world through this man, Abram. And then once they were enslaved, he came and he freed them. He brought them out of Egypt uh, through the parting of the sea. He delivered them. And so God was the rescuer, the deliverer, the one who came to them when they could not rescue themselves. He's looking back at our history and said, God's always come to us. Abram didn't know God. Abraham was an idolater. He didn't know the God of the Bible, the true God. So Abram didn't know anything and God came to him. We were enslaved in Egypt, couldn't do anything. God came to us and freed us. And so then they were in the desert 40 years. Israel was in the desert 40 years, wandering after that deliverance. And he says, verse 18, for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, there's a footnote there that says it can also be translated, he carried them. So the ESV went with the more negative 
connotation. He put up with them. Yeah, God put up with their rebellion, uh, or he carried them. Actually, he did both. He carried them along even though they were uh, you know, rebelling in their attitude towards him. Then what he did was he destroyed seven nations in Canaan and gave them the land as an inheritance. So God had promised a land to Israel. He goes into Canaan, and he defeats the nations and gives them a land. So this is all God's generosity. Now, they fought the battle, but who really won the battle? The battle belongs to the Lord. And so he did this great thing, got them in the land. Once they got into the land, uh, they would turn to idols. There was a cycle. They would sort of turn to idols. God would send a judgment. Another nation would attack them. Then God would raise up a, a judge, is what they were called, judges to deliver them. And so he says here, I gave you judges these were these many deliverers, these sort of micro saviors, we could say, with God being the capital S savior, these individuals that he raised up that could do all kinds of things, like beat people up with a bone and just great stories in the book of Judges. But he would raise up these leaders that would deliver God's people. So he said, even when we failed, God carried us. Even when we failed and nations you know, attacked us, God delivered us through these judges. So he, he refers to that. Then he goes on and said, then everybody asked for a king, so God gave them Saul. Saul ruled for about 40 years. He gave him a prophet. The prophet anointed, the prophet was Samuel. He anointed the king. And then, verse 22, he raised up David to be their king. Now look what he says about David. About David, he said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So after all this history, God brings this great king to them named David. Now he was flawed, but he was a great king. And he primarily, the thing that was great about him is he had a heart for God. He wanted to honor and serve and please God. He wanted to obey God. He wanted to care for God's people, Israel. He wanted to shepherd. That's what he was by trade. He wanted to shepherd God's people as a king. And so he raised up this great King David. And here's the thing. David was a king who was a foreshadowing, a, a front runner. Uh, he was he was a foreshadowing of a greater king who would come. David was the ideal king, but there was coming one after him who would be the ultimate king. The king not over Israel, but over all the world, all the universe. The king who rules and reigns. The king who would deliver his people. The greater David. The king of kings. David represented that king. So in all of this history, I provided for you David, he's saying. God, God says, I provided for you David, who ultimately pointed to the great king. Now look at the next verse there, verse 23. Of this man's offspring, meaning down the line from David and his family tree, from David, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So all the people in the synagogue, they're tracking up till this point. They're loving it. I mean, he's, he's, he's telling their history, yeah, God made a covenant with us. Yeah, God gave us judges. Yeah, God gave us a king. Yeah, God gave us David. Now he says something totally controversial. He says, God gave you Jesus, and that's the ultimate Savior. And he says, John the Baptist, they all knew who John the Baptist was. John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance. But John the Baptist says, I'm not the king. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the savior. There's one coming after me. I'm not even worthy of tying his shoes or, or sandals to be historically accurate shoes to make a cultural connection presently, I suppose. But I can't even tie his sandals because he is so glorious. It's a, it's a figure of speech, meaning compared to him, I am nothing. 
because he's so great. He sent Jesus. So he's telling them, look at our history. God has always come to us, and he's come to us ultimately in Jesus. Verse 26. Brothers, son of the fam- sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, meaning Jesus, or understand the utterances of the prophecies of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news. This is Paul saying, we're here telling you good news that God, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. So here he is telling them that Jesus is the one sent. He says, every Sabbath you read the prophets that say the Savior is coming. But when he came, they didn't recognize him and they killed him. That's what he says. They condemned him. Our people killed Jesus, even though we had heard the prophets read that said a Savior was coming. We didn't recognize him. And we ultimately had Pilate, a Roman ruler, kill him, execute Jesus. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. So they took him down from the tree, verse 29, laid him into the tomb, and God raised him from the dead. Now, he's making an important point here about took him off the tree. Jesus was crucified on a cross, but the cross was made of wood, a tree. Anyone, the Bible said, the Old Testament said, anyone who is uh, hung from a tree is cursed. So he's making the point to them, this Jesus who was sent, God came to us, Jesus fully God and fully man. Jesus came to us and he was cursed. Not only by man, but he was cursed by his father. He was taken off the tree. He was hung on a tree and killed because he was cursed for sin. Now, he was innocent. He never committed any sins. They found no guilt, it says here. Yet he was cursed. Why? Because he took our sins upon himself. So Jesus died as a sacrifice. He died as a substitute. He died in our place. He paid the price for our sins. We should be condemned for our sins, but Jesus was condemned for our sins if we believe. So he's, he's making that point. He was cursed. He, he makes the point about the cross in here, and he's pulled off that. He's buried, and then God raised him from the dead. And this is a big point of emphasis. The big deal in the book of Acts, the reason people are getting really mad at the apostles, the reason that they're killed 
is because they're proclaiming that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the controversial point. This is the big deal. If they were merely claiming that he died as a martyr, that would not be controversial. But because he rose, that means that what he said was true, that he was really the son of God. He claimed to be God, and the proof is that he, raised, he was raised from the dead. And so they are making a controversial claim that Jesus is God, that he is the one sent to bring forgiveness of sins, and that he didn't stay in the ground, but he was raised to life. And he makes this point in an interesting way. Verse 36, he says, you will not let, he quotes a psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. So corruption, he will not, your holy one will not see decay uh, or corruption. Um, and, And he compares him to David in verse 36. He said, David served God's purposes. He was a great king. He fell asleep, that is, he died. He was laid with his fathers, that is, he was buried, and he saw corruption, What does that mean? Under the ground, there was like dishonest people. No, not that kind of corruption, like decomposition corruption. Like he, he was, his body was corrupted. He, he died and settled and did what dead bodies do, uh, decomposed. Um, but Jesus died and was buried and he didn't see corruption. He came back to life. That's what he's saying. David, he's saying, listen, Israel, God came to us, did all these things in our history, culminating in King David. But David doesn't compare to Jesus because David's bones could be located in a ground somewhere. And Jesus's cannot because he was raised from the dead. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known. And this is the second part. This is the application. So that's all the proclamation going back to Abram through all their history. The wilderness, the judges, Saul, David, John the Baptist, now Jesus. And here's the big point about Jesus. He was cursed for sinners as a substitute in our place. He was raised from the dead, greater than David or anyone else. He is the Savior. So what's the application of all that? Is that just a history lesson? It is a history lesson, but it's more than that. Here's the point, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So Paul's saying, why am I telling you all this? Why am I telling you this whole story? Because we all need, like, we, we need Old Testament Survey 101. We need, to, we need to remember our Old Testament lessons. He's not a history lecturer, He's not a religious philosopher just sort of running through their story as a people. What he's doing is he's coming and saying, this is how God has brought forgiveness to us. See, this is the great story. Every one of us in the room has a story today. We all ended up here somehow today. Some of us may be against our will. I don't know. But we all ended up here somehow, and we all have a background Some of us come from real religious backgrounds. Some of us come from real anti-religious backgrounds. Some of us adults were the squeaky clean kid in high school. Some of us in high school were hell on wheels, doing drugs and crazy out of control. Some of us were those kids. You know, some of us, we all have a different background. We have different impressions of God. We have different experiences. So we all bring a story to here today, as did these people. What Paul's wanting to say is there is this grand story of God coming to us, 
to save and to rescue us. And here's where the great story intersects yours. He says, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you in him. So whether you were the moral person who was religious and moral, like many of these were who heard him, or whether you were the irreligious, immoral person, either way, you need forgiveness of sins. And so do I. It doesn't matter what story led you to this place. He's saying forgiveness of sins comes to you in Jesus. And as I'm preaching his sermon, I say that to you today as well. That there is forgiveness of sins for you in Jesus. And that is your greatest need. You know, what is it? It's afternoon right now. So it's starting to feel like your greatest need is lunch. Starting to feel like I need some food. You know, how much longer is he going to go? Uh, but I'm about to tell you so that I can get some more time here that your greatest need is not food. Uh, your greatest need, I'm thirsty. That's not your greatest need. In fact, I need oxygen. That's not your greatest need. Your greatest need is for forgiveness of sins because you and I will stand before the holy God of the universe one day, and it's coming soon. We will stand before the God of the universe and we'll give an account for our lives And all of us will be found guilty, every one of us. And so the question will be, do we pay for our sins or has someone else paid for our sins? Has our guilt been removed from us? And that's what he's saying. Forgiveness of sins is in this man. I'm proclaiming Jesus to you because in him, your sins can be forgiven. That's the application that he's making to them. And he he says, lest anybody think, well, Hey, we're good religious people. Why do we need this Jesus? Look what he says next. Verse 39. And by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes what? Everything he's just told us. That Jesus came sent from God. That Jesus was the promised one. That Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and that Jesus was raised. He mentions that three times. That Jesus is alive, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating the devil, proving that he is who he said he is, God himself. If you believe that, what he's saying is that you'll be forgiven and you'll be freed from everything that the law of Moses couldn't free you. What's the law of Moses? Well, it is the, the law, the rules of the Old Testament that God gave his people Israel, particularly found in the uh, first five books of the Bible, but the law is found wherever there is a command given by God. And so he's saying, you have the law, but you can't, you can't be free by keeping the law because none of us can keep the law perfectly. No one can. Now, if you have a, the Bible I'm using is an ESV, there's a note there that says the word freed can be translated justified. So what he's saying is you can't be justified before God by keeping the rules. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be right with God. So God is holy. I'm not. You're not. I can't make myself acceptable and right and in good relationship and good position with a holy God by keeping the rules. That's what he's saying. So he's saying, I'm telling you about Jesus because you can have your sins forgiven and have a clean conscience and a new life for eternity. That's why I'm telling you about Jesus. That's what God has done. He's come to us in Jesus. I'm also telling you, he says, you can't make yourself right with God through keeping the law of Moses. We're made right with God, how? 
by believing in Jesus. We're declared right with God when we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. When we turn from our sins, believe in him, receive him as the Savior, the one sent for us, then we experience what he's talking about, this new life. Now, here's what's so interesting about this, and it would be a little bit different than we often share the gospel. He tells them this is called the good news. The word gospel means good news. This is the good news. You can have your sins forgiven. You can spend eternity with God in heaven. You can have a new life, a fresh start. You can be right with God, accepted, loved by God. Um, you can be reconciled to the Father. You'll be adopt, you're like an adopted child, and he brings you into his family, with, showers you with his love and his care, his tender affection. So you become part of God's family with your sins forgiven. You can receive all of that, he says, which is great. That's the good news, that we can receive that because of what Jesus has done in the cross and resurrection. But here's what he does. Oftentimes when we just give the good news, we say, there's the good news. Like we're pitching a product or something, say, do you want to buy? You know, are you in or not? But he, he does, he gives a warning. He gives the good news and immediately goes to a warning. Verse 40, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Okay, here's the good news, but beware, everybody. Because the Old Testament says, here's what some people are going to do when they hear this good news. So don't be those people. Don't fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament prophecy say in Habakkuk 1.5? It said, verse 41, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So the Old Testament says there's going to be people that are going to hear the gospel, and they're not even going to believe it. Don't be those people. Don't fulfill that prophecy. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, believe in him, but don't fulfill the prophecy that says a lot of people are going to hear this, and they're going to reject it. So he gives them this warning. Beware, lest it's true of you. So here's how everybody responds. The, uh, it, was mixed, it was mixed reviews. It was a mixed response to uh, not just to this sermon, but to Jesus. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word, to it, the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went, into Icon and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So you see how they responded. People, this was not like a normal day at the synagogue. You've got people sitting there. They hear this amazing good news. The history of Israel has been 
fulfilled in Jesus. And some of them are so affected by this good news that they beg them, would you please come and preach to us next Saturday? Would you please come the next Sabbath? And we want to hear more. The good news had affected them, and it's like they could not get enough. They had to hear more of this good news. I can be forgiven. I can be right with God, not based on what I do. Are you telling me that I can be accepted by God without my works, apart from my works, in spite of my works? I want to hear more about that. I want to hear more about this grace. So they beg them to come back. So there's some people that love it. The leaders don't love it. They're jealous. Paul and Barnabas have a crowd. He's preached this basic, clear gospel sermon, and the response has been amazing, and the leaders hate it. They don't like it. They're jealous. And so they contradict what Paul says. They revile him, which means they verbally abuse him. They abuse him. They criticize him. They present arguments about him. So Paul and Barnabas basically speak out to the Jewish leaders. And it says, God's, they say this basically, God's plan was to bring the word of God about Jesus, the message of Jesus to you. But you don't view yourself as desiring to know him. You don't view yourself as worthy of receiving this good news about Jesus. And so he says, we're going to the Gentiles. The Bible says that you're to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. So we're moving on. If you don't want any part of this, if you're rejecting Jesus, we're moving on to those who want to hear. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, I mean, they're not even part of the deal. They're not even a part of God's covenant family. They're on the outside. And Paul says, we'll bring the good news to you. They start rejoicing. They glorify the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So the Bible just says, as a matter of fact, it doesn't raise this, this election topic as a controversy or a debate. It just says some people believed. Who believed? the people that God had appointed to eternal life. Very simple, very simple. They personally believed, they willingly believed, but they believed because God had appointed them. So there's this group of Gentiles that respond and they are believing in Jesus. So the word of the Lord spread. The whole region, people are hearing about Christ and the Jewish leaders are very upset about this. Those who rejected Christ, many of the Jews believed in Christ. But some rejected, and the leaders rejected. So they got the powerful people in the city, and they turned the powerful people against Paul and Barnabas. And evidently, they probably, well, we're going to, you could read later in Paul's story that he was persecuted here, um, and probably physically, he was physically persecuted here. But they stirred him up and drove them out. So basically, kicked them out. And uh, so here's what happens in verse 51 Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Now, what is going on there? Why would Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet to the Jewish leaders? Here's what that meant. The way the Jews uh, believed was they believed that outside of Israel, outside of the Holy Land was unclean. There was unclean people. There were unclean areas. There were unclean animals. Um, And so uh, when they would come from an unclean area back into Israel, into the Holy Land, They would shake the dust off their feet so they didn't track in any uncleanness into Israel. And so what Paul is saying to Israel is he's shaking the uncleanness off his shoes because they have rendered themselves unclean by being unwilling to believe in the one who could forgive their sins. So it's an irony. It's a role reversal. He shakes off his dust, 
the dust off his shoes symbolically to the unbelieving Jews. Say, if you want nothing to do with Jesus, if you're rejecting him, if you're hating us, if you're hating him, if you're rejecting your Messiah, your Savior, then, then I'm shaking the dust off my feet. You're, in essence, putting yourself in a position of being unclean. I'm going over here to the Gentiles. They become Christians. They're cleaned, cleansed by God. It's a, it's a radical role reversal is what happens here. So many people believe, and then what we have is it says that, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So those who believe, their hearts are, their hearts are changed. And they, the, those who believe are filled with God's presence and they're filled with joy. Paul tells them this great story of what God has done, proclaims to them forgiveness, invites them to connect to Jesus, to believe in him. And they are all invited into that, and so are we. Regardless of your background, that's the important thing. It does not matter. These were religious people. We're going to see now Jesus, uh, we're going to see Paul going to those who weren't part of uh, God's people, Israel. They were either non-religious or they were actually idolaters. They just believed in other gods. But he's going, he's going to the Gentiles now. And it'll be, the message will sound different when he preaches to the Gentiles. He's not going to go through all the history of Israel because that doesn't, wouldn't make a lot of sense to them perhaps. Um, so the gospel's the same, the work of Jesus, but the packaging, the way he connects with them, sometimes a little different depending on who he's preaching to. But he says, forgiveness comes to you. That is our greatest need. As I mentioned earlier, we all stand before a holy God and give an account of our lives. I believe everybody really knows deep down inside, everyone deep down inside knows that something's wrong. We all know something's wrong with us. We all know we don't live up to the standard we want to live up to. Even if you're not religious, even if you don't believe in God, we all know there's this sense of right and wrong and I'm not a perfect person. We all know that. And we all have our consciences affected at various times by that. And we can go one of two ways. One of the ways to deal with a guilty conscience is to come to church. That's one way. To just come to church and, you know, do religious duty to make up for our failures, thinking that will make us right with God. But he said you cannot keep the rules and make yourself right with God. You don't earn acceptance by God by keeping the rules. You receive the gift of God's acceptance by believing what Jesus did, who he is and what he did. So some people go religious as a way to deal with a guilty conscience. Other people seek to silence their conscience by going the other direction. So they go into immorality. Not morality, but immorality. So greed... Uh, lust, sexual sin, perversion, alcohol, drug abuse to, to cover the pain, whatever it is, workaholism, to lose myself in my job so I don't have to think about all that other stuff. So we go into all kinds of idolatries to silence the ache of our soul and to silence a guilty conscience. But Paul says, hey, look, forgiveness comes in Jesus. It doesn't come in morality, and it doesn't come by seeking to silence our conscience through sin. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Whatever your story is, you, the, the great story intersects your story at this point, saying whatever you've done, tried to earn God's favor by your morality or turned from God in your immorality, whichever it is, God says you can be forgiven by believing in Jesus. God says your sins can be washed away, your conscience can be cleared, you can receive a new heart, you can receive freedom. That's what he says. 
this is a freedom that you can never get by rules orientation, by trying to keep the rules to be accepted by God. You can never justify yourself by rule keeping. That's why Jesus came and died for you. That's why Jesus came and obeyed for you as well. He did keep the rules for the glory of God. So that's the good news. If you have never believed, uh, I, I tell you what he says in this passage. Turn and believe and receive forgiveness of your sins. That it is, it is the best news imaginable. That you can have a new life. That for etern- your eternity can be changed by believing, will be changed by believing in Christ. Turn, recognize that your sins, that you've sinned against a holy God. Recognize your failings, your, your rejection of God, your, your ignoring God, your living for yourself. Recognize all of these things for what they are, an offense to a perfectly holy God. And ask his forgiveness. Trust Jesus as your Savior and receive new, new life. That is the glorious good news. And it comes with a warning. I would not be faithful. I would not be loving you. I wouldn't be true to the scripture if I didn't tell you, as I'm preaching Paul's sermon, if I didn't tell you what he said. You can be free. You can be forgiven. Beware. Beware that you not be the person who hears the good news and either it says scoffs at it or just, uh, just will not believe. Do not scoff at Jesus Do not fail to believe. Do not just go about saying, oh yeah, well I can take care of that later. I can believe that when I get older. I can believe that when a different time in my life. Don't be that person. Don't say I've got, beware. The forgiveness of God is extended to you in Jesus. Reach out and receive him by faith today. Believe today. Do not put it off. The Bible says many will and many did and many have. Maybe, Maybe you say, well, I'm a part of this church He's preaching this message to religious people. I'm religious. Well, he's preaching this message to religious people and saying, don't trust your good works, believe in Jesus. That's what he says. So maybe you're, well, maybe I'm a leader in the church. That's okay. If you're trusting your works, if you've never really believed, if the lights have never really come on, then may they come on today and may you respond. Maybe you're a church kid. It's not your parent. Not only are you not saved by your works, you're not saved by your parents' good works. You get zero credit with God because your parents are faithful believers. You received a great blessing because your parents are faithful believers. You received a great, we could even say advantage in many ways because your parents are believers. You received a great, um, you know, rearing or are receiving. You're being raised in a, in a, in a wonderful way. But you get no credit be, with, with the holy God because your parents believe. You must receive grace. You must believe. So I don't care if you're a leader at Grace Church, if you're an attender, if you're a church kid. I don't care if you're moral. You may, be the, the, you may keep the rules better than any of us in the room. It says you can't be a Christian by keeping the rules. You must receive Jesus to receive forgiveness of your sins. Well, you have no idea what I've done. I, I don't need to know how bad you've been. You can't be bad enough to be worse that the grace of God can't reach out to you. That's what he said. The whole history of Israel is people messing up, people rebelling against God, people receiving the gifts of God and basically saying, forget you, God, I'm going to do my own thing. That's the whole history of Israel. And he keeps coming to them and loving them and forgiving them and granting them judges and kings and now a savior. You can't be bad enough. I don't care how bad you are. You cannot be bad enough to escape his mercy and you cannot be good enough to earn it. What he tells us here is there's one way and it's believing in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, which many of us in the room are, if you are a believer, then 
We want the same experience in verse 52. The disciples, that is the followers of Jesus, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Man, I I want to be like this. I'm begging to hear more about the good news. They're begging, please come back next week. Please tell us more good news. Man, I want to be that. I want to be, Lord, I got to hear more good news. God, tell me more. Let me read the gospel in the Bible. Let me just be saturated with this good news of the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus to defeat sin. When I'm in the middle of sin, I need that gospel to call me back to you to turn and to believe afresh. I I want to be those who are saying, tell me this more, tell me this more. I want to be filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Hey, it's no accident that the connection between the filling with the Spirit and joy is the message of the good news. It's when they hear the message of the good news, the lights go on, they believe, and they're full of joy. Well, who wouldn't be with a clear conscience, with forgiveness of sins, with relationship with God, with an assurance for eternity, with God at work, saving people around us, with us seeing, visualizing the mission right in front of us. God's up to something. God's doing something. God's giving us new life. He's touching others. I get a fresh start. God loves me. God welcomes me. That is, there's joy that comes that's tied specifically to the gospel message. And there's the filling of the Spirit that's tied specifically to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Because he's resurrected, because he's seated at the right hand of God, he pours out the Spirit on his people. So this message provides the joy that we need. This message provides the, 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 uh, our awareness of our need for the Spirit. And this message provides eternal life for those who need him. This is a simple gospel message. Well, I've heard that before, and wow, I just sat through. I've heard this for 30, 40 years. I just sat through. I'm not saying I'm a great preacher, but if this message doesn't stir your heart, this truth, when you read this, if it doesn't stir your heart, the good news is there's work for God to do in your heart, and he's going to do it. There's more. There's a greater experience. There's a greater present experience of Christ than you currently have if this text doesn't stir something in you. If it doesn't stir something in me, if my heart's cold to this, then God wants to awaken me. God wants to stir me so that nothing excites my soul like a glimpse of the crucified, risen Savior extending forgiveness to me and declaring me righteous because of his work. There's no joy that compares to that. One day we'll see him face to face and it'll be, whoa, this is more glorious than I ever could imagined. But even right now, he wants to fill us with joy and fill us with the Holy Spirit as we trust not our works, but his work, which then empower us to live a life of obedience to him. Not because we're keeping the rules to be accepted, because we're already accepted. Therefore, we want to live a life for his glory, obeying him, walking out his scripture, filled with the Spirit, filled with joy. So whether you're turning for the first time or the thousandth time, let's all turn afresh to Jesus now and thank him for what he's done and respond with a believing heart that trusts him alone. Father, we come to you today and we're just so, Lord, we can make it so complex and we can add so much of our own opinions and preferences to what the Christian life's all about. Thank you for this sermon from Paul, which just points us to your history as a God who pursues and loves and rescues and saves and how that culminates in Jesus. 
Lord, we just love that. Thank you for that simple truth. And we just respond to that simple truth. I pray for anyone in the room who's never trusted you that right now the lights would go on and that they would believe, that they would turn from their sins and they would believe in Jesus right now, Lord. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.